This is the Commission Church Online. Welcome to our podcast. We want to be a church who brings heaven on earth through the word of God and the love of Christ. I pray this week's message blesses you. We are going to continue a study in the gospel according to Matthew, and we are in part 30. Okay, I know people do four-part series and three-part series, sermon series, but we're on a 30-part sermon series and still going. Amen. Uh, And I want to title my message this morning saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to Jesus. If you don't know about our church, we are what we call a spirit-filled Bible-believing church. And we believe that the Holy Spirit has its place here in our church. And not just that. We also believe that we are mandated to teach the Word of God in all its authenticity. So that's what we try to do. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, uh, and today is, nonetheless, we're going to go back into the Scripture where we left off. We left off at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23 last week because we couldn't go. Time, time ran out. So we're going to continue in verse number 25. You guys ready for the study of the Word of God this morning? Amen. Matthew 10 and verse 24. Here's what the Bible says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, in this passage, I'm going to break it down before I read the whole passage, We're going to discover that in this passage that we're about to study, at least three times Jesus is going to repeat to his apostles that he is sending, that he is commissioning, and he is telling them, do not be afraid. He's saying, do not have fear inside of your hearts. There's a reason behind that. Because what Jesus is going to ask them to do is very, very scary. They've never done what they're about to do in a few moments after Jesus commissions them. And although we're going to break this, this commission up into a few ver- you know, a parts, this is basically a commission that Jesus has given them over a matter of a few minutes. And it's so deep in its, in its content that it requires us to break it down and see how it applies to us in our everyday lives. What Jesus is asking them to do is going to scare them is going to shock them. What Jesus is about to do is going to lay a precedent before them because it has never been done before. And for that, you need boldness. For that, you need confidence. For that, you need no fear. And Jesus is breathing into them that he is going with them and and his presence is with them. And and in all the ways, he is reminding them that, man, they're going to have to run away from certain situations. That's where we ended last week at. But Jesus looked at them and said, hey, if one city doesn't accept you, flee. If they're wanting to kill you, flee. Run away from that city. Go into the next city. So it's a scary proposition that we're introduced to over here. Some of these guys are going to meet their family members. Some of them are going back into the towns that they grew up in. Some of them are going going to go back into the villages that they probably had a very bad reputation in. They're going back to cities where they embezzled other people. They're going back to cities where uh, they were cussed at or where they cussed somebody out. They're going back to cities where they grew up and where people knew them and their reputation preceded them. It very much is very similar to what our situations are in our mission fields. 
A lot of people are scared to go, go into the mission fields that God sends us because we're way too familiar in those mission fields. People know us for who we are. A lot of us are scared to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are afraid what people may think of us because our reputation precedes us. Because we may not have a good reputation. Because probably when we were, you know, we, we always talk about it, back in the day I used to be like this, or back in the day I used to be like that. And for a lot of these apostles, Jesus is sending them back into these small towns and villages. And for so many people, there is this, this, this fear inside of them. We don't know how we're going to be accepted. We don't know how we're going to be accepted by our family members. We have a Matthew who was a tax collector. And the last thing he wants to do is buy, be by himself in the, in, you know, in the streets of Jerusalem and be in the streets of Judea. Because he's like, man, we don't know what people are going to do to me. So Jesus is looking at them and saying, hey, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Trouble is coming. And the first verse he starts off in verse 24, he starts off and says, the disciple is not above his teacher nor his servant above his master. What does that even mean? I really want to break this down because he's saying no one is above the teacher. Who's the teacher that he's talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus is talking about himself and he's saying, man, I will suffer rejection. I suffered rejection. I suffer opposition. I suffer persecution. I'm going to suffer persecution. I'm going to suffer opposition. And because I suffer persecution, he's basically saying, man, a disciple is not above his teacher. He's looking at him and saying, if I can suffer persecution, so can you. It's like, you, you have no idea what you're going to witness in a few months because he, yeah, oh, I'm going to be on that cross and I'm going to have to, ha, I'm going to be sacrificed on that cross. There's so much going to, there's so much going to happen in these next few months. But, but he's challenging them and letting them know that they are able to do it. Because Jesus is trying to teach them in all your dealings with everyone, remember how they treated me. Remember how they are going to treat me. Remember how they have treated me before. Remember that I've, I've had to run away from situations. And, and people have plotted to kill me. And people have done this and that. And my own brothers have, you know, did not like. All of this stuff is real to them. And, and Jesus in one statement, it says, it is enough. In verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. Such a powerful reality in one statement. God has done everything for the believer. When we were still sinners, God loved us. That's what the Bible tells us. When we were not worthy, God loved us. What does this mean? In Philippians 1.29, Paul breaks this down and he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's just not enough that Christians believe in Jesus, but he says a mandatory requirement for Christians is that you must suffer. Someone say, must suffer. It's not a may suffer. Paul is saying you will suffer. There's a Christian here that has not suffered in any way of, or shape or form. I want to remind you that someday you are going to suffer. What does Paul mean? Like, have you been guaranteed? Has a Christian been guaranteed a, a life free of sickness and persecution and struggles? Absolutely not. When we experience persecution and opposition, Paul is reminding us we're an exalted company. That's what Jesus is trying to remind his disciples too. 
It's like none of y'all are above your master. If your master went through it, if I went through it, if I'm going to go through it, I'm commissioning you to go through the exact same thing. But he will never take you where he's never been. Come on, I want to remind somebody that. He's never going to take you through a situation that he's never tested in the first place and Jesus is commissioning them. In verse 25, it says, if, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The word Beelzebul was an insult, a nickname for Satan almost. Uh, it, was, it was coined that the Lord of the flies. It was Beelzebul that was responsible who caused Israel's suffering. And here is the people looking at Jesus and calling him Beelzebul, calling him the devil. Why? Because they see the miraculous that are happening. They see the, the amazing that is happening. They see the dead that is being raised. He sees him. They, they see him going into dead situations and bringing them back to life. And they cannot help but coin it black magic. They cannot help but coin it. Man, this is the work of the devil. When the miraculous starts happening, when God starts moving in a powerful way, there's always going to be a group of people that will be like, hmm, I wonder if that is God. There's always going to be those people. There's always going to be those people that even call Jesus Beelzebub. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, man, they call me that. And Jesus is warning them and saying, man, if, if, if they call me that, like, like, Imagine that they're going to call you even worse names. Jesus could not es escape persecution. He's our master. And, and as his servants, we can't expect to be treated any better than our master was treated as, as his disciples. Our goal, as his apostles that are commissioned, our goal is to be like him. And in verse 26, he breaks it down further and he says, so have no fear of them. That's easy for you to say, Jesus. You're Jesus. Have no fear of that coworker. He might call you names, but have no fear of him. He might mock you for your faith, but have no fear of him. It's easy for you to say, Jesus. The people that I work with, you have no idea. The friends in school, have you even seen them? They are devils sent from Lucifer himself. Have you seen my cousins? Have you seen my mother-in-law? Come on, somebody. But yes, that is your mission field. And when, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, but that is your mission field. Like, do not call, do not fear the name callers is what Jesus is saying. Really, Jesus? Like, really? You're telling us to go out without, you know, without you? You're not coming with us. You're just sending us by ourselves and, and, and do all the miracles that you've been doing and, and take no means of supporting ourselves. Don't take a purse. Don't do this. Like, like listen to all the stuff that Jesus has told them to do. He's like, really? And you're telling, telling us that while we're doing all this, that some folks may listen to us and most of them are going to reject us and some may even try to hurt us. Some will try to arrest us. Some will try to flog us and kill us all of this Jesus and you're telling us not to be afraid yeah right I don't know about what Christianity that is but that's not what really I signed up for you don't sign up for something that's tor that tortures you anybody does that we need to pray for you no nobody ever I'm going to give you a message that's going to make people say oh he's not looking for people you know to, to flog to, to, to throng and for people to be to be to be people that, that say hey we're just in for the fun of it Jesus is like this is far from fun y'all that's exactly what Jesus is asking them. he says don't be afraid of them 
They can't do anything to you because, because that's, that's what the power of God is when the Holy Spirit is inside of you. He gives you the strength to be able to resist anything that comes against you. I don't know what persecu persecution or what form or how, how extreme, to what extent you're facing, but I want to remind you something, and Jesus says that. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered. Why do not have fear? Because nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Come on, that's good. Jesus reminding them and saying, man, they cannot do anything to you that won't be revealed in the end. Your glory is not in what you're going through right now, but because you're going through what you're going through, one day the glory will be found. When Jesus in his majesty reveals that which has been hidden, everything that his people has done to you or people do to you, they will be shown for who they are and you will be shown as faithful and true. That's the day I'm looking forward to. It's the day that Jesus will look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus is reminding them that and saying the truth will come to light. I always say this, man, the truth does not need to be justified. The truth has the ability to stand on its own. And that's what I want to remind somebody, encourage somebody with today. In verse 27, the Bible says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus is getting serious about this commission. He's saying, y'all, I don't want y'all to be shy about me. Can I contest that Christians must not and should not be shy about the God that they serve? It goes against everything that God desires of us as his people. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, he's, he's basically saying, man, take our private conversations and make them public. He's looking at his apostles and saying, every conversation that we've had in private, every conversation that I've, I've had with you in the upper room and all the, in Peter's house when nobody was watching, everything that I've taught to you, everything that you've seen, everything that you've done. He's looking at Peter and saying, man, when you were inside that room and that little girl came back to life, it was in the dark and nobody saw it. But now is the moment. Everything that God has revealed to you, go out there and let the world know. Go and be witnesses. That's what we were singing about today as well. I feel like we need to make that the anthem of our church. I was waiting for a song like that to come out. Wow. That's what, like what I tell you in the dark, what is, what is happening in your own life. Are you keeping it quiet? Just over these last few weeks, man, the number of people that have come up to me at church here, some of them sitting over here, and they've shared personal testimonies with me of cancer disappearing. Come on. Doctors said, hey, you had cancer, and we prayed for their brother, and they were healed. Tumors disappearing. Come on. This, like God is up to doing something amazing, and I can't wait for people to get out of your comfort zones and your shells and say, I'm not going to keep this a secret anymore. I'm doing a big disservice to the kingdom of God and to Jesus. If This is not the best kept secret. Jesus does not want to be a secret anymore. The world needs to hear about the secret that you're holding so close to your heart. Somebody needs to hear about this church. Let's take our private conversations, make them public. Proclaim the kingdom of God has come as loud as you can. Get it out. Some of us have, have, have it down in our journals. You've, you've, you've written down by the goodness of God in your journals. Get it out of your journals. Am I talking, like, this, this has to happen, church. There are some authors sitting in this building right now. And all you do is just write journals for nobody to see. 
And God's like, what I reveal to you in some of your darkest times. Some of us go through some dark and some, some lonely times. And, and if you pray and if you seek the face of God in those moments, all you got to do is pull out your journal and sit in the presence of God and cry. And the stuff that God can reveal to you in his beautiful time is amazing. It can change somebody else's life. Ooh, verse 28, and he goes on to say, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Wow. He's saying these guys are going to do harm to your physical body, to your mental health. Some of y'all are going to quit or want to quit witnessing and testifying because, man, it's not good for your mental health. How many of y'all have been there? I've been there so many times before where I feel mentally drained after I do ministry. Anybody? No? One, two, three people? Jesus is saying, do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Can I tell you something real quick? Now, remember this. Jesus talks about the reality of hell more than he actually talks about the heaven, about heaven in the Bible. Like you can go and read through the New Testament. And Jesus warns us and reminds us about the reality and the goriness and the, the reality and the pain of hell and why we shouldn't embrace hell and why we shouldn't go to hell more than he says, heaven, 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 heaven. Because he wants us to understand hell is real, hell is real, hell is real. I've committed that we as a church will talk about the reality of hell because hell is real. Some of y'all don't like that. The scriptures are not apologetic when it makes it clear that all humans are immortal and we will exist eternally either in heaven or either in hell. Am I talking to somebody? The moment you were born into this world, not when you became a Christian, the moment you were born into this world, you became an eternal being. You have an earthly existence, but it doesn't change the fact that you are an eternal being. And, 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 the, and the reality of it is that you have the decision to either go this way or that way. There are so many of us that need to be reminded that hell is a real place. And heaven is a real place. And just like Jesus did, man, I don't want to sugarcoat this. In Matthew 25, in verse 46, Jesus states, And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The words of Jesus should not be misconstrued. It shouldn't be watered down. He has a clear distinction. And he says, those who follow me and love me will go to heaven. And those who will not will go to hell. We also learn from the scripture that if we go to hell, it is eternal and it is irreversible. Hell is horrible. Hell is continuous death. Pastor, how sure can you be? Because there are several passages that describe the ongoing torment that will be experienced in hell. In Matthew 15 and verse 50, the Bible declares, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It amazes me, church. Can I tell you something? It amazes me how many people I meet do not believe in hell or that Satan exists. And perhaps, just perhaps, it's probably a way of just justifying their lifestyle. 
And you'd be surprised how many churches have joined that pity party and looking at people and saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. Hell's not really a, a real place. You know, heaven is a real place. Hell is just the opposite of heaven. So it's just, a, it's just an existence, just a fee. No, 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 he hell is real. I, I want to remind somebody, it's perhaps it's, it's just total ignorance on the part of some people, and, and they believe that both are, are merely a part of a fairy tale. It, 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 it may not even be a concept that enters their minds. Some people can't comprehend it. Some people can't understand it, grasp it. It's possible that, that hell and Satan may seem irrelevant to them because of what they were taught. And I've heard so many people say, man, I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. Anybody? Heard that before? Yep. My answer to that is then you don't believe the God of the Bible. You don't believe in a God of justice because that's what I believe. And I always tell them, I just don't feel I can afford to be indifferent to hell and Satan. You know, according to the scripture, hell is a real place. But the good news is that hell is completely avoidable. I want to remind somebody and tell you, you do not have to go there. You do not have to choose that option. You can pick Jesus. You can say yes to Jesus. And I titled my message this morning, say yes to Jesus, because it is a choice that you make. Oh, come on. John Knox Famous missionary on his tombstone, there is this line that says, Here lies a man who feared God so much that he didn't fear the face of any man. Remember that. That's what Jesus is trying to tell people. Do not be afraid of these men that look at you and they may kill you physically. But man, you need to be more worried about a God that looks at your soul. Is your soul perishing? He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I need us to understand this. It was Walter Martin that once said, if there's no hell, there's no Satan. If there's no Satan, there's no evil. If there's no evil, there is no sin. And if there's no sin, there's no savior. And this is true, this is powerful. Because the Savior is the only one. Jesus in his infinite mercy, he loves you unconditionally. And every person sitting here, if you were born, there is an eternity for you. The moment you die, there, is, there are two ways you can go. It's either an eternity with God or an eternity in hell. And today, you can make that choice. Because you're sitting there and you're like, man, I don't believe in hell. You're basically saying you don't believe in a just God. Because the, the, the presence of hell and the presence of heaven just reveals to me that my God is just. And he makes sure that those who, are, those who, are, those who follow his precepts and that love him have a place, a place of reward. And those that, that, that openly disobey, that openly denounce him, that after given all the chances they've been given, openly put him down are the ones that don't make it. You tell me that you don't believe in hell, you don't believe in a good God. Francis Chan in his amazing book, Raising Hell, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a beautiful read. He says this, the doctrine of hell should not drive us to despair, but rather to hope in mercy, in the mercy and in the grace of God. 
You can sit here and you can say, oh, God's not real because there's a hell. Why would he and his beauty and his majesty and his love create a hell? But that just proves to me, it's not, it's not to say, it's not to lead us to despair or to lead us to hopelessness. It is a point of contention rather than to lead us to a point of hope where he says that the mercy of God and the love of God is everlasting. I'm taking time to talk about this because this is important, church. I need some of us in our witness to go out into our workplaces and have gentle and honest conversations. If you love people, you will have honest conversations with your, if you love your coworkers, if you love that uncle that is far away from God, if you love that neighbor, you are going to be propelled to have honest conversations with people and tell them and speak life over them and tell them, I am, I want to see you in heaven. Jesus is real. Hell is real. And if you say yes to Jesus, there is a place for you in heaven. Matthew 25, verse 41, the Bible says this, the reality of heaven, hell. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In Jude 1.7, the Bible says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve in his example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In Revelation 21, John the Revelator in verse 8 reveals to us and says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars, they will all be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Church, this is no joke. This is not a laughing matter. This is not to be brushed aside. The reality of hell is so very real. Here's the biggest mistake we can do is we can miss the context of the, the verses over here. We can miss the context that Jesus is talking about in verse 28 and 29. Because in verse 26, he says, one day the truth will come out. Verse 28, he says, persecution power is, is limited. In verse 29, he says, God cares about you. And over here in verse 29, he, he reintroduces this other subject altogether. And he says, what is the price of two sparrows? He goes from hell is real to like talking about sparrows. Jesus says, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin. In some translations in the ESV, the Bible, I'm reading from the NLT on this particular verse because it's a little more explanatory. But in the ESV, it says, like, what, one penny? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. Why does he bring sparrows into the picture? Sparrows were so cheap. Sparrows were so cheap. Two of them were sold for a copper coin. To give you context, 100 copper coins made one denarii. And you give, you, 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 you give them two two of those copper coins in the market and you get two little sparrows. You know how you would go to the fair and buy, a, you know, like, like candy, like apple on a stick or sausage on a stick and all those, those delicacies, chocolate dip, strawberry. It was the same thing. In the market, if you go, they would, they would actually roast sparrows, two sparrows for two copper coins. Or one copper coin would buy you two sparrows on a stick. So cheap, so insignificant. But the Bible says God knows about every sparrow 
that is insignificant. That's the knowledge of God. And he compares you and me and says, in this vast world, in the, in the worlds of millions and millions and millions of people, man, does God even see me? He says, yes, I see you. You might be minuscule. You might think you're not worthy. You might think you're so small. He doesn't care about your soul. But he says, if I care about the sparrow, if my eye is on the sparrow, my eye is on you, my eye is on your soul, you are not discounted. You are not poor. You are not unworthy. I love you. I came to die for you. And because of that sacrifice, I want to remind somebody, you are worthy. You are worthy. And he goes on to say, you know how worthy you are? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. He's even talking about the ones with very little hair. Plenty or little, he says, it's number. Like I know every single time before you even look at your hand and be like, oh, my hair's falling. He's like, I saw it falling the day before. It's numbered. I got a count of it. He says, fear not, therefore you are more, more value than many sparrows. Woo. Like God sees value in us, church. He does. And not only that, he commissions you as apostles and disciples to go into the world and have the same idea of every person you encounter is valuable. They're not a nobody. They can be a Hindu. <laughs> Excuse me. Or they can be a Muslim. They can be an atheist or an agnostic. They don't need to look like you. They may be homeless. They may be without hope. They may be mentally Challenge, they may be on the street, drug addicts, whatever the situation may be broken, Jesus loves them. And he wants you and I to see that we are more valuable than the sparrow. Verse 32, he goes on to say this, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. I want to repeat the title of my message. Saying yes to Jesus is one of the most important decisions and statements that you will ever make in your life. Do you know that Jesus doesn't impose himself on any of us? God does not impose his love on any of us. He gives us free will. And in that, the verse says, man, we have the choice to acknowledge or not. And Jesus is very particular. And he says, you acknowledging the existence of God in your mind is one thing. And you acknowledging God in front of everybody is a complete different opposite. Come on, am I talking to somebody? Oof. He says, because when I acknowledge you, the Bible says when one person is saved, when one person says yes to Jesus, heaven rejoices. That's the acknowledgement that happens in heaven. My question to us is can we be silent and faithful at the same time? We have to speak the truth and we have to do it in love. So I want to speak the truth right now and I want to do it in love. Is that okay, church? The people go up to Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 2 and they ask them, what do we do to be saved? 
The same people that Jesus has commissioned them to and sent to the people in Judea and Samaria and the rest, these people are asking in Acts chapter 2, Peter says to them in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're like, what do we do to earn salvation? And Jesus looks at them and says, repent. Acknowledging God is not acknowledging the enemy. Acknowledging God is just directly opposite of giving the enemy a foothold in your life. When you acknowledge God, you dismiss the power of the enemy in your life. You do not give him a foothold. What do I have to earn salvation? Repent. You have to do this. A is turn from, what is repentance? It's turning to a, a, a complete one and saying, I am not going to go back to my wicked ways anymore. I'm not going back to my old self anymore. Saying yes to Jesus means turning your back to the world and turning your face to Jesus. That's the first thing, repenting. And some of us need to repent. We need to repent for our evil ways. We need to repent for our wicked ways. We need to repent and say, God, I am sorry for all that I have done wrong. And the second thing is this. It says, be baptized. Someone say, be baptized. No two ways around it. It's a non-negotiable. Christian, it is a non-negotiable. Non-Christian, it is a non-negotiable. If you want to say yes to Jesus, you say yes to Jesus, you repent from your, way, your, your, your evil ways, you turn to Jesus and you say, I'm going to acknowledge you in front of everybody. And what is being baptized? It's being immersed in water. What does that signify? Going into that water that we will put you in and we will baptize you just like Jesus did and John the Baptist did and the apostles did. That water signifies death where you are going under that water. You go under, you are dying to your old self. As you come out, you come out as a new person that is saved and that has experienced a salvation experience, a saving experience through the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, when Saul was walking away from God and he was blind, Ananias is sent to Saul. Ananias looks at Saul and says, man, get up. He heals him. And in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, the Bible says this. Ananias looks at Saul and says, now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. He has healed you. He has set you free. How many of us experience the love of Jesus? And we experience the freedom of Jesus yet do not want to carry through with what Jesus himself instructs us to do. The Bible's not sugarcoating this. He's saying, get baptized. So I want to gently in love remind every Christian in this building, you have to be baptized to identify with Jesus Christ. Because God isn't ashamed of you. You shouldn't be ashamed of him either. Baptism is a public demonstration of your faith. Baptism is looking at the world and saying, hey y'all, listen up. That used to be the old Ashish, but today I am deciding to follow Jesus. It is a public demonstration of my love for Jesus. The day that I proposed to my now wife, I, I, I went up to her and I said, will you marry me? I told the whole world, hey, I'm not fooling around anymore. I am committed 
And I want the whole world to see that this ring that I'm about to put on my girl's finger makes her mine and, and makes me her. It is a commitment that I made. I just didn't make the commitment and leave it at that. A few months later, I walked up to the altar, stood right next to her. I invited 500 of our friends and family members. Some of you are like, whoa, that's a small wedding, trust me. 500 of them sat in front and I said, I want all of y'all to watch now. All of y'all are going to be witnesses that I am publicly going to affirm that this woman's going to be my wife. And she said the same thing. He's going to be my husband. Am I talking to somebody? Personal decision. Some of us are engaged to Jesus, but we're just so, so we're, 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 we're just so scared to marry. We're like, the commitment is so hard to make. How, how can I go ahead on that altar and just give it all? I'm not going to be a bachelor anymore. Come on. Can we just be engaged for like forever and ever? Amen. And she's like, nope. Nope. Nobody wants to be in that situation. Jesus doesn't want an extended engagement. Come on. So am I talking to somebody? He needs somebody that can jump in and say, hey, I am ready to make this commitment. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking them to do. And if there's somebody here that is not baptized and needs to be baptized in following up, I don't, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, if you understand what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary for you, I want to share with you in a nutshell, he died for your sin. I was a sinner. He died for me. And because he died for me, he shed his blood for my sins. And because he shed his blood for my sins. I'm sorry, my throat is itching. Because he said, he shed his blood for my sins. I have hope in the fact that tomorrow if I die, I will be in heaven with Jesus because he calls me his own. And I have looked at him and I have said, Jesus, I say yes to you. But it starts with repentance. Some of us need to make that decision today. And in verse 34, I got to close this off. In verse 34, are you ready for some scary stuff? It gets darker. Ready? You thought that this was dark? No, he talks about, he talks about birds. He talks about hell. And now he's getting ready for this next, next part. The most misquoted verse sometimes, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Woo, come on. Yeah, y'all better put your seatbelts on for this one. This is going to get turbulent right now. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Nobody said amen. And, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, yeah, Jesus, come on, man. Like, you need to do a better job at this training stuff because this training and commissioning thing, I thought we were going to have some donuts. I thought it was going to be a good time where we were going to get together. You are going to equip us. You are going to get us excited. But this is far from exciting. Nobody wants to be in a job orientation where somebody just scares. Come on, scares you and says, welcome to the job. You're going to get killed. Your mom's going to hate you. You're going to hate your dad. Come on, somebody. Hmm. I have not come to bring peace. 
Like, isn't that in direct conflict with everything Jesus is about? Like, even before Jesus arrives in the scene, Isaiah is prophesying in Isaiah 9 and 6, and he says, for, you know, that for, for a child has been given unto you, right? And, and a son has been given, the authority rests upon his shoulders. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. Jesus says that in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Like, isn't that what Je Jesus is peace? But, but then why does he say, I've not come to bring peace but a sword? Jesus isn't talking about violence. I want you to listen up. Violence is the conclusion if you ignore the whole chapter. If you open up your Bible and land at this verse, you're going to be like, I hate Jesus. How can a good God be so violent? But when we take the chapter into consideration, he isn't talking about physical violence. He's not talking about families being divided. In Luke chapter 15, in Luke's account of this verse, I love comparing like I've done before. The Bible says, I have come to bring division, not peace. Like, what is Jesus talking about? Why is Jesus dividing rather than uniting? If you read the above passage that we did last Sunday, you'll understand context. And context here reveals that we as Christians are actually on the receiving end of the sword. Jesus is not here exercising his sword power on the world and dividing the world. Jesus is saying, you guys think that because I'm Messiah, I'm just going to come here and I'm going to destroy all your enemies. Like the Jews were waiting for that. They thought the Messiah was the one that was going to come and release them and deliver them from the Roman Empire. Just like Moses did when he went and released and delivered the Jews from the Egyptians. They thought that this was the new Moses. That's what they thought that, that Jesus was coming to do. And, and Jesus is addressing them and saying, man, that's not why I'm coming. I'm not coming to bring peace among Romans and Israelites. That's not why I'm here. You're not getting peace. You're getting the sword. Like I was sent to separate you. What does that mean? You are called, like believers are called to be separated. We are called to be set up. Someone say set apart. And that's what the salvation experience is. The moment you say yes to Jesus. I want to encourage some Christians here today. Although you are in this world, you are not. That sword on that day of salvation has separated you. He has cut you off from that fold that you used to identify with. And he's saying, no, no, no. I have called you to be a part of the separated. I have called you to be set apart. Because in verse 16, last week, we talked about how we were called to be sheep among wolves. That is separated. Sword. He goes on to say unbelievers will bring believers to the court. That is separated. He said they will persecute you. That is separated. It's important to understand context. Jesus is talking to the religious. Jesus is trying to commission them to go to the, to the religious elite and, and the, the law of Moses followers. And he's telling them, Jesus says, man, I have brought the sword. The, the dividing factor between the Moses and Jesus, the, the people that said the law of Moses is important, the religious people, Jesus was like the sword. The sword that divides relationship from religion. 
So many of us will never get baptized because you got baptized when you were two months old. I don't need another baptism. I got the right baptism. No, you didn't. Sorry to burst your bubble, but you didn't. I'm not offending anybody, but if you, if you got baptized, which was my mom, she got baptized when she was two months old, when her grandmother came up to the altar in front of the priest, gave her to him and said, I believe on her behalf that she's going to be a Christian. And they took some water and sprinkled on her. My mom said, I didn't believe. The Bible says if you believe, get baptized. Baptism is for the believer. That's why we call it believer's baptism. That's what the sword that separates the religious from my talking to somebody. I, I'm, I don't mean to offend you. I'm very being very biblical. If you believe, get baptized. I am trying to be as biblical as biblical can be. And, and the Bible says this. He says, and, and that's why we don't, we don't baptize children. We baptize people that believe, that make a proclamation, a declaration. I did that when I was 12 years old. Somebody asked me this yesterday. May 13th, 1997, I made that decision to follow Jesus. I went into some muddy water, some dirty water, and I got baptized. Why? Because I wanted to identify with what Jesus did on the cross. And I did it because I was able to identify and understand myself. So Ashish took that decision. So there's somebody here that you were baptized when you don't even remember when. My talk, and somebody else took a promise for you that you will be a Christian. And you're like, I turned out good, didn't I? No, but you're still not in obedience with the scripture. The scripture says those who believe should get baptized. I hope you're not mad at me. It's okay if you were. In verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Worship team, you guys can get rid get ready to come up see Jesus is not dividing families here please get this right he is for the family he's he loves the family he loves the father Jesus is saying when push comes to shove be be willing to leave everything and follow me see this is a matter of allegiance this is a matter of of of, of misplaced priority more than anything else Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross, like a cross is where you die. And he's saying, man, this Christian walk is about you dying every single day. Dying to your needs. Dying to your selfishness. I want to remind somebody, you don't just add Jesus to your life. You give up your life and follow Jesus. That's what picking up your cross means. A Christian doesn't say add, friend added, followed on it. No, no, that's not. It's letting go of everything else and clinging on to that one thing, the anchor of your soul. All that Jesus is trying to tell us is this. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's basically saying, don't put family above worship of God. I want to remind somebody this morning, Jesus is everything. Would you stand up to your feet with me, church? Jesus is everything. He wants your undivided allegiance. I may have ruffled some feathers this morning. 
I may have ruffled some feathers of religion or something that you were taught growing up, something that you were taught, you're taught right now. But I'm trying to be as Bible-based as possible and as biblical as possible in my understanding of the scripture. But brother, the Bible says, oh, the whole family was baptized and that might have included children and infants. But did they believe? My honest assessment, I, I believe that the whole family that believed in Jesus was probably baptized. It is a very clear instruction, a commandment from God. And I want some of us to make that decision of saying yes to Jesus. Not just in words, not just a, Jesus, you know I love you. No. That's like looking at the woman that you love and being like, you know you love, you know we love each other. We don't need to get married. Run. If there's, there's a guy telling you that, he's taking you for a run. Dude, run. If you're that guy, come to me for prayers. I'll pray for you. Commit. Commitment is important. Commitment is necessary. Saying yes to Jesus is going to cost a lot. It's going to cost your religion. But brother, this is what I believed for so long. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Sword. I have come to be a sword. Like, I didn't come to say, everybody live in peace with one another. I came to divide. If that means your father is going to get mad at you, ah oh well. I said this last Sunday, we have people coming to this church that are sitting on our chairs and our pews that they have made their parents upset and angry and mad because they chose to say yes to Jesus. I have Christian parents that have forsaken their kids. Excuse me. Adult kids have been forsaken by their parents. 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds that because they said yes to Jesus and followed it up with baptism, their parents don't talk to them anymore. But they understand the depth of this verse that says, whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Because this decision to say yes to Jesus is not just a casual yes. It's a committed yes. It's a until death do us part yes. It's a ride or die yes it's a I'm, I'm in this for the long run yes and although I might get rejected although I might get ostracized and put down and shunned and scorned and spat on so be it but my yes is going to be a yes and I pray that, that that's that's a decision that so many of us will be able to make and if that's not you standing over here today if that's you that knows somebody in that situation, I pray that you will have the ability to take this message to them in love. Thank you for listening. We love bringing you the word on so many different platforms. We are so thankful for what God is doing in and through us. We'd love for you to subscribe so you don't miss out. And don't forget to share this message if it has blessed you.